All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. I'm just going to use the audio, but... Um, Sorry, what was that? I said, I'm just going to start recording now, and I'm just going to use the audio for the podcast and just happen cool. to be on video. So. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you can turn it off if you want, but it's whatever's sure. up to you. Oh, it's okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to do the quick little intro and then go, basically just going to go through the questions that I sent Um and you know if we get conversational that's totally fine if you say something and you want to re-say it like if you're like that sounded dumb um just like say like i'm gonna restart this so when oh, okay. i know when i'm editing that i can like put in the correct version <laughs> that's handy yeah thank you appreciate yeah. me and zarmin do that all the time we like we'll just record like a lot like a very long thing and then we'll just make weird noises so we know when we go back and listen to it that we're like, okay, yeah, cut that. I have to cut there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but okay, let's get started. Cool. Welcome listeners to another episode of Your Brain on Science. We're continuing down the rabbit hole of our psychedelic series with a very, very hot and controversial topic, personal psychedelic use among therapists. And you may have seen a couple of weeks ago, the mess on Twitter sparked by a publication out of University of California, San Francisco. Many folks, including myself, of course, were quick to give opinions on the matter. And these opinions ranged all the way from each side of the spectrum, from no therapy experience and only psychedelic experience to no psychedelic experience and therapy experience. And for some, they found themselves saying, does it even really matter? And so today I am bringing on the first author of said paper, Dr. Jacob Aday, and this paper was titled Personal Psychedelic Use is Common Among a Sample of Psychedelic Therapists, Implications for Research and Practice. And so we're going to get a more nuanced conversation going than what uh, we saw on Twitter today. So hello, Jacob, and welcome to Your Brain on Science. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, super happy to have you on here. Uh, before we just uh, start our discussion on this paper, Will you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got into psychedelic science? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so my degree is in experimental psychology, and um, I got that from Central Michigan University, where I worked with Dr. Chris DiVoli, and um, I initially went there to work with Chris on more general attention and perception research, and then uh, during the first semester, of the PhD program, I took a history of psychology class, and uh, Dr. Davoli was the professor for that class, and um, he gave us a lot of flexibility with what we wanted to to write about for our final project in that class. And I wrote a paper about the history of LSD in that class, and uh, I'd always been interested in psychedelics, but had never, you know, seen a opportunity to um, really make that part of my scholarly work. And this is around 2017. So at this point, it's pretty fringe, I'd say still, you know, some of the studies were starting to come out, but um, certainly didn't have the support that the the, the movement has behind it nowadays. Um, so yeah, I wrote a paper in that class. Um, it did well. Uh, it won like a paper award at the school and we submitted it to a journal and it got published. Awesome. And so thanks. Yeah. And that kind of showed to to Chris that we can make this, you know, an impactful line of research in our lab. 
And so from there, um, you know, he was really open-minded and letting me uh, pursue my interest in that area further by writing more review papers and historiographical papers and, uh, you know, hypothesis and perspective papers on psychedelics, um, you know, things that didn't require any money, didn't require any IRB approvals, didn't require um, huge infrastructure to run clinical trials, just things basically I could do from my computer with the resources at hand. And so um, I did that and started to get my foot in the door of the field. And pretty quickly, it became um, uh, my only line of research, basically, in the lab. I stopped doing the, the general cognitive stuff I was doing before and um, really focused in on this area because um, I was finding it super fascinating and the Renaissance was picking up momentum and um, had support for my PI, which which was major. So um, I was doing that and came time to do my dissertation um, and actually need data for your dissertation. So <laughs> uh, I collaborated with an ayahuasca retreat in Costa Rica, um, looking at changes in gratitude, uh, appreciation of nature and aesthetic experience uh, for the dissertation. Um, so I had some naturalistic data. And at that point, um, the next natural step seemed to be to get involved in clinical trials with psychedelics. And so uh, I came to UCSF to work with Josh Woolley at the Translational Psychedelic Research Program. And um, since then, I've been, yeah, helping with initiating clinical trials and, of course, writing more review papers because that's kind of become a specialty of mine. And <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, just getting immersed in the field more and more. Awesome. Uh, I have a question. So for those who don't know, I also went to Central Michigan University. Um, so we were just talking about that before we started recording. But uh, did you find that, I guess you had a supportive PI, but did you find that when you like talked about psychedelic science to like other people, like how is the environment with that? Because I, I came to Central in 2018 and I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. And everyone was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I was just wondering if you had a similar experience being in a PhD there. Yeah, great question. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. Um, when I presented that paper in my history of psychology class, um, fall semester 2017, I could <laughs> feel the eye rolls in the back of the class from some of the other students. And um, yeah, it certainly knew from you know, through the grapevine that other people weren't taking it very seriously, which, which, which hurt. And, um, yeah, it didn't feel good, but I was passionate about it and I knew, um, that there was something legitimate here. And so I, we kept with it and there was support too, through the, the department. Um, you know, the, the department head at the time was really supportive of us. And she actually let Dr. Devoli develop an, an entire course on psychedelics, which was among the first, I think in the country on wow. psychedelics. And, um, it, yeah, that went really well too. You know, there was tons of um, interest from the student body, as you might expect. Um, and I, he was going to teach it another time, but I think he's on sabbatical this year. So I think it's going to be a class that uh, reoccurs at the university. So yeah, there was definitely definitely pushback uh, in the beginning for sure. I think it, um, I could, it, it, you could feel it less than over time. I think partly because we were publishing papers and, um, you know, especially for our department, I think we were particularly productive. And then, you know, just more broadly, there's this, you know, changing in the zeitgeist around psychedelics over the last five years, which definitely facilitated um, attitude changes as well. But yeah, yeah, that's a great point. There was definitely a lot of pushback and um, people not taking it seriously at first. Yeah, definitely. That's so funny. I didn't know none of my professors when I, you know, proclaimed my love for psychedelic research in undergrad were like, oh, well, so-and-so has written like 
That's so funny within the yeah, same university, and I didn't even know. Down the so, hall, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> but yeah, missed opportunity. Yeah, I know. Come on. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, so awesome background. Excited to talk about some of this stuff with you today. Um, so let's get into the subject at hand. So. Starting off, I just kind of want to briefly touch on this standard of therapy, right? So what do all therapists typically bring to the table? So you mentioned in like some of the background introduction of this paper that um, first off, usually a therapist is educated. So there's typically a master's required for therapy practice or a specific certification program. Are there accredited psychedelic therapy programs on that same level as your typical psychotherapy? Um, not to my knowledge. Yeah, I don't think there are. Um, and I'll say, yeah, I guess right up front when we're talking about this subject that I'm not a therapist myself. So um, yeah, there might be some institutionalized aspects like this that maybe I'm not as familiar with. But um, yeah, we have a lot of clinicians on the study team as well, um, clinical psychi psychi psychologists and psychiatrists. So mm -hmm. um, I kind of you know, leaned on them a lot when talking about some of this, I think, in the paper. But yeah, to my knowledge, I don't think there's anything accredited. Um, you know, just recently, the, the biggest, one of the biggest training um, institutes, it seems like synthesis went um, completely bankrupt. And so um, it's definitely a very, I guess, tenuous area. <laughs> there's like stop, a lot of stuff that's still being figured out in terms of where the rigorous programs are and um, you know, what's a good investment of your money if you're somebody trying to get trained in this area. But to my knowledge, there isn't anything that's accredited yet. Mm -hmm. That's a consensus. I kind of ask everybody some of the same general questions to see if I'm missing any information. <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, because I know there's like that large training program, which I'm very interested to see what happens now that they've kind of went bankrupt. But yeah. then you have people who self-train and reference like some of the training manuals like MAPS or from CIIS. So um, it's just interesting to think about like where these trainings and where this education for psychedelic specific therapists are coming from. Yeah, I think um, University of Wisconsin is developing a training program and then Berkeley will be as, will be as well. Uh, I think they're a little bit further back in the process of establishing their center. But it sounds like there's going to be some university outlets for this as well, which might be a safer bet in terms of <laughs> not going bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, so besides just like the education, there's also this kind of belief in the myth or the rationale of the psychotherapy approach. And I know like I touched on this in a previous episode um, with Dr. Gukasian, and we discussed how this is like a common factor for psychotherapy. So I just wanted to know as someone who's like, researched and like written a lot of reviews read a lot of the literature um and some of these outcomes how do you think that this like belief in the psychedelic assisted approach influences some of the outcomes of psychotherapy with psychedelic assisted therapy yeah that's a great question um yeah like you alluded to um you know therapists belief in their specific therapeutic orientation um has been shown to influence um treatment outcomes regardless you know outside of psychedelic therapy <laughs> so mm -hmm. traditional psychedelic or psychotherapy and so with that being the case you know there's no reason to think that it would be any different with psychedelics you know um and if anything i think it's probably even more relevant given what we know about um you know set and setting and context and expectations um you know a therapist who really believes in the treatment is going to be um probably more likely to you know, invest more resources in carrying it out and making sure it works. Um, 
and um, you know has a vested interest in in proving that this is the way. And so, yeah, this is true for all types of psychotherapy, but I think it's um, a particularly important concern in psychedelic therapy. You think that there's a way that we could potentially measure these, like, uh, I guess, expectation bias or like outcome influence when, you know, thinking about how clinical trials are like written about or like some of the questions that are asked? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's definitely something that's been kind of overlooked and something that psychedelic therapy is kind of shown, shining a, a bright light on right now is... Um, there's all these kind of little aspects of clinical trials um, that have been kind of neglected in psychotherapy research, you know, things that seem very basic, like measuring the blind and, you know, measuring treatment expectations, um, things that, you know, you kind of cover in basic research methods class early on in your training, but you come to find that some of the most common interventions don't really, um, don't really care about these things very much, it seems like. And uh, with psychotherapy, you know, it's how do you even do a true double-blind study? You know, the, the therapist is always going to know that they're giving therapy. And the, the can't. It's hard to <laughs> make the patient unaware that they're in the process of doing therapy right then. So, yeah, so I think that's there's a lot of common problems to psychotherapy that have been unacknowledged for decades, really, that are starting to be talked about right now because of how much attention psychedelics are getting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things you said, and I covered this in previous episode too, is that these aren't just issues within the psychedelic assisted therapy like realm. It's just that this is being popularized. So now we're starting to think about this more, but what about, you know, other indications or other pharmacological trials, right? So this isn't anything new that we're seeing with that. Yeah, exactly. It's just hasn't been on the cover of Newsweek, you know, the <laughs> methodological yeah. challenges of typical psychotherapy research, you know, it's, yeah, but with with all the excitement about psychedelics, you know, that just every rock's being uncovered and turned over, it seems like right now, which is, which is a good thing. I think, you know, we need to be as rigorous as possible and get ahead of the issues, you know, as quickly as we can, especially before um, this treatment becomes scaled up and disseminated more and more, um, which it already is, you know, um, at the ballot level. So yeah, um, yeah, important to talk about these things. Definitely. So mm -hmm. that kind of leads me into asking, so we have the the also the lived experiences that are thought to be important when you are in a field where you have to have empathy towards others who are seeking help, right? So typically this is referring to like an experience in life that relates to like the client that they're that the therapist would be seeing. Um, so for example, a lot of substance use counselors have experience um, with substance use and therefore are now, um, clean or sober, whatever their definition of that may be, to help others who are struggling. Um, and so how is this type of lived experience different from experiencing psychedelics as a therapist? Yeah, so I, I don't I don't know if it is, you know, this is something that gets talked about. Again, this is a broader issue in psychotherapy, yeah. you know. Um, you know, do you need to have gone through substance abuse yourself to be an addiction counselor, you know, do you have to have been a veteran to be um, a clinician at the VA? You know, it's um, something that has been talked about a lot. And to my knowledge, you know, it hasn't been shown that having those experiences necessarily improves the outcomes of your patients. Um, you know, certainly there's something to be said that, you know, for having living lived experiences and to know 
what the other person has gone through but um i think it's it can help you but it's not necessary you know it's not sufficient or necessary yeah it can be <laughs> a useful tool but um you know there's also ways of being an impactful clinician without having gone through those lived experiences and with psychedelics you know i think there's a lot of tension just giving given how um, ineffable the experience is often described people say you know we just can't describe this in words so um, I can't convey what the experience is like you have to go through it yourself and so I think that's where you know this debate really comes um, but yeah like we needed to more um, throughout the conversation there's also a lot of reasons to say that you know maybe it's not necessary and maybe there's drawbacks as well to, to having personal experience so mm -hmm. yeah we're gonna get into all of that <laughs> <laughs> um but before we do i guess i wanted to also talk about how um i mean you brought this up too in like some of the introduction uh the therapists and psychiatrists in their training are encouraged to like engage in their own form of psychotherapy um as a form of like experiential learning and I think you also make the point that this doesn't um, happen with like other doctors. So this doesn't happen with like a, a physician or an anesthesiologist. So um, do you have any comments on that? And like, if, why, like, why do we have this exper experiential learning in psychotherapy? Yeah. So I think I think there's not one rule that fits all necessarily you know there's some things that you can pick up and become pretty proficient at just by reading the books and attending lectures and uh there's other professions where you kind of just have to do it and learn you know um i think a lot of people understand that um you know identifying which professions fall into which categories where things maybe get messy and you know when the categories blend you know that's where we have these um you know these arguments i suppose but for psychotherapists, you know, there's a lot of literature showing that um, it can increase, you know, different parts of their competencies. So um, just, you know, reading off the paper here, um, we have a number of studies showing that personal psychotherapy for psychotherapists enhances distress tolerance, awareness of personal impact, empathy, personal mindfulness skills, uh, emotional intelligence, self-regulation, and a sense of mastery in the therapeutic process. So a lot of, you know, important skills um, in terms of being an effective psychotherapist. And this isn't just like one school of thought in psychotherapy. You know, there's um, experiential learning has been shown in CBT with psychoanalysis, um, humanistic approaches. Um, and so it's yeah pretty across the board um, in terms of the different types of psychotherapy approaches. However, mm -hmm. not every psychotherapy program requires um, people to go through their own training. So, for example, at Central Michigan, um, in the clinical psychology program, people did not have to go under, undergo their own therapy necessarily. Um, but at other schools, they do. So I, I've tried to look into it to see, you know, how common that is, you know, what proportion of programs require people to have their their own personal psychotherapy. And I couldn't find that myself. But um, mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's it's valued, but there's a lot of variability in how it's actually implemented across different training programs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point that it's, you know, not every single training program has this component. And I think there's something to distinguish, right? So we're talking about therapists and training going to therapy for themselves, 
that's different than if a lot of programs that require hours of training where you shadow another therapist and see how they're performing therapy and in psychedelic assisted therapy um, people in training will sit with somebody who's been doing it for a while to see how they do it and interact and so I just wanted to make a note there that we're talking about two different things when we're talking about this experiential learning so yeah good point to make (laughs) yeah even though we're talking experiential learning in the form of like attending a therapy a lot of this doesn't ever really involve pharmacological agents themselves so it's not like a therapist is required to try an antidepressant right before (laughs) (laughs) prescribing it a physician isn't required to like try an opioid before they give it to a pain patient you know so yeah just impractical really yeah there's too many possible medications for them to try for them to have tried them all and Mm -hmm. it's not safe necessarily to have tried every medication yeah yeah especially you know you don't need it and whatnot there's a lot there's a lot of things wrong with that but um, (laughs) yeah it's like really yeah really that's really the heart of the problem you know is psychedelic therapy more psychotherapy or is it more drug (laughs) and you know people who say it's more therapy you know have I think a little bit more of an argument there for experiential learning um whereas those who think of it more as just a classic drug effect you know I think would have less uh of an argument for saying that experiential learning is there so and it, no one's really that's really an open argument I think right now you know how much is it how much of it is drug how much of it is therapy that's very mm-hmm. I was gonna um, say inclusive that's, right now <laughs> that's one of the million dollar questions right now yeah exactly <laughs> so and it's so funny because I'm a preclinical researcher right so I kind of lean towards like oh, well, I think there's probably some brain component, some drug component that's like playing a role. And then you have the other side that's like, it's strictly this experience with this therapy. And and I honestly think I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't think it's either or. I think it's a common. Same, yeah. yeah. I think a lot of scientists feel that way, honestly. <laughs> it seems like, yeah. <laughs> if you're willing to be open to the evidence, yeah, it seems like you can see, yeah, both, both camps there because there is a decent amount of evidence in both directions. You know, if you, you have all these animal studies showing therapeutic effects you know that uh, ostensibly they're not having mystical experiences or profound experiences of insight so I don't know how you could write off there being some biological component there yeah and similarly people have clearly have these insights and um mystical experiences and such that predict therapeutic outcomes so I don't know how you can completely <laughs> uh resolve right that either without <laughs> yeah acknowledging the the psychological aspect a little bit so yeah definitely a balance there to to explain things I think yeah <laughs> definitely uh I wanted to ask you could you talk about an example of where a, a person training or um like or I guess give some examples of you know someone who has taken their drug that they're researching or taken the drug that experimentally to get into like what their patients were feeling and then maybe in a positive or a negative way. Does that make sense? Was that a good yeah, way to yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I don't have, uh, you know, too many specifics on these stories, but, you know, Sigmund Freud, of course, um, is well known for his cocaine use. And um, I think he even thought that it could be used to treat depression himself. Um, similarly, you know, John Lilly, um, you know, very much indulged in his own personal ketamine use. And um, I think, a lot of people would say that his use was problematic <laughs> in terms of his professional career. Um, so certainly there are downsides to professionals using these substances or using just you know psychoactive substances that they're interested in studying. Um, but also, you know, there is 
um, you know, like I said, alluded to earlier, there is reason to suspect that there might also be benefits. Um, so back in the 70s, a number of uh, clinicians were administered LSD back at Spring Grove Hospital and um, themselves and their own family members and professional colleagues confirmed that this was a beneficial and um, helpful thing for them in terms of their professional development. Um, and, you know, more recently, we have things like MAPS, where they're you know, running studies that would enroll their own personal psychotherapists so that they could get the drug in a, in a legal and um, regulated manner. Um, and if you talk to psychedelic therapists, you know, it's it's pretty much a given, I'd say, to them that, that psychedelic therapists need to use psychedelics themselves or need to have at least some prior experience. And um, I would say even myself going into this project, I would I was much more in that camp that it was hard to imagine a psychedelic therapist who who hadn't had some kind of psychedelic experience themselves. But um, in writing this paper, I would say my opinion shifted to where I could see how um, an otherwise, you know, skilled clinician could be an effective psychedelic therapist without their own use. Yeah. And so, okay, that leads us perfectly into my next question <laughs> of, so what are some of the possible advantages to using psychedelics as a therapist? And then on the opposite spectrum, what are some of the disadvantages? Yeah. So, um, so first off, like I said before, the experience is very commonly described as ineffable. You can't convey it in language to other people. Um, and so I know if you can't convey something in language or in writing, um, experiential learning seems like a natural way to learn about something. So uh, I think that could be a potential benefit, uh, especially uh, because psychedelic experiences can be highly emotional, very ontologically shocking in terms of people's conceptions of reality. And so that could be something part to maybe um, fully empathize with if you haven't had such ontological shock yourself, maybe. Um, again, we don't really have data on this. So this is all pretty much hypothetical. Mm -hmm. um, we do have data on the fact that people prefer psychedelic therapists to have their own personal use. So there's actually two studies that have shown that at this point. Um, and I think that's important to consider, especially given the importance of context and positive expectations and being comfortable in the treatment, um, especially psychedelic therapy. Uh, if somebody is a little uneasy about their psychotherapist or doesn't think they know what they're doing or doesn't understand it, uh, they might be setting themselves up for a bad experience, given just what we know about you know people being apprehensive before taking a psychedelic or having um, you know anything you know, that, that would hold them back. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, there's definitely positives to 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 consider in terms of psych psychedelic therapists having their own use. Is um, it um, common? I don't know if you know the answer to this. Is it common for therapists to disclose that they've used a psychedelic before during like prep or like anything? Yeah, so I don't know for sure. I know that our therapists, when they're asked, they typically will tell the patient. I don't know if they say it up front without being um, prompted about it I'm not sure yeah that's um, always just been one of my kind of considerations with this question these topics is like how would you know if they did yeah exactly because some yeah. people don't feel like they want to professionally disclose something like that and I feel like I mean my position should be up to the 
the person they want to disclose or not. So that's my. I don't feeling think it should well. be required. I don't know. Yeah, we'll get to our opinions, I guess, at the end more <laughs> in depth. But <laughs> right, no, um, I, I feel the same way there. Yeah. But um, yeah, what are some potential disadvantages? Yeah. So, um, in terms of potential disadvantages, um, a lot of people are, you know, advised not to take psychedelics, of course, because of, um contraindicated medical conditions or medications they're taking or uh, religious beliefs. Um, you know, people of color are disproportionately targeted by law enforcement for substance use. So, um, you know, potentially that population has um, an increased um, incentive to maybe not want um, to use these substances as they're currently scheduled. Um, you know, also psychedelics have been shown to lead to directionally consistent changes in personality and thinking styles. So people become more open. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there seem, there does, there do seem to be some consistent personality changes after psychedelics that we've, we've documented. So if every single person who is a psychedelic therapist has taken a psychedelic um, we're going to have potentially a very homogenous group um, in personality and thinking styles, which doesn't lead to good outcomes, and um, which is what we know from tons of non-psychedelic research, you know, increased diversity um, and variety of experiences and perspectives facilitates better thinking and group outcomes typically. So um, I think I think there's a reason to include both people who have not experienced psychedelics themselves um, and people who have their own personal use. Um, and also lastly, people are, there was one survey study showing that people have a diminished, um, um, I guess diminished attitude about the rigor of people's research if they admit their own psychedelic use. This is among psychedelic researchers, but, um, in the context of psychedelic clinical trials, you would expect that, um, self-admitted psychedelic use among therapists would also maybe, um, hurt people's, um, uh, position is being seen as unbiased or fair mm -hmm. yeah that's something I've seen come up a lot too just in discussion yeah that's why I don't disclose you know whether I have or have not used psychedelics myself because it's a no-win question mm -hmm. you know if you say that you have used psychedelics people say oh you're you know you're an advocate you're biased you <laughs> you can't be removed from this question and if you say you haven't used psychedelics then people say oh you don't know what you're talking about this is <laughs> yeah. you have to do them to understand them so i just i would rather my my research and um my conclusions from my research not be tainted from either of those lenses so i prefer not to disclose yeah yeah, I am right there with you. I've never <laughs> disclosed in any professional environment whether or not. And and I love, like, this just happened on Twitter when this paper came out, right? I posted my opinion and people were like, she's a narc. Like, she doesn't know. Yeah, she's I've and gotten I'm like, some I'm, the same thing. Like, I'm literally a psychedelic scientist. And also, <laughs> you don't know my life. Like, you know, not going to ever say if I have or haven't. But I just thought it's so funny the the things that people will say when they don't know anything yeah, about you assume a lot about you on twitter from just knowing a couple little bits of things yeah, yeah. about you yeah um, yeah you just referred to uh one of the surveys you mentioned in this uh, paper that was asking people if they valued personal experience of a therapist right and one of the things from that um survey was that people of color valued personal experience in their therapists more do you have a like thought about why that would be yeah yeah certainly there's a 
a history of people in color of people of color being um you know mistreated or the subject of medical interventions or medical tests that um proved to be very unethical and very damaging to those populations so the tuskegee experiments you know specifically mm -hmm. and so uh there's understandably a little bit more apprehension about you know testing or using untested drugs and uh, treatments among that population. Um, so I think if the therapists themselves have used the drugs, um, I, I would be more apt to trust that, you know, maybe this is safe and um, I'm not being misled again. So yeah, I think that's a reasonable concern um, for populations to have. And I, it does make sense to, to me that they would value personal experience among the clinicians more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that was just a cool little finding that from that survey yeah um, yeah but my knowledge of you know past medical experimentation it like made sense to me and interestingly like even nowadays like I'm at VCU we live right downtown in the city that's predominantly people of color and um, when med students try to go out into different communities or well, we do like surveys and stuff a lot of the communities are are hesitant uh, to be involved which I just think is it's sad I wish there's a way to like build that trust again so be one of the reasons why we see lack of participation in some of these clinical trials of people of color because of that kind of mistrust yeah exactly yeah that's what I've heard from the Hopkins people too especially when they were first getting started that they were you know having a lot of um you know trouble recruiting diverse populations and um, they were a lot of times they've been critiqued. I, I myself have critiqued them, I suppose, for not having diverse populations in their studies. But uh, come to find out, you know that they were they were trying to um, address that. But yeah, there is just such resistance, I guess, that um, yeah, sometimes it can be hard to get truly representative samples, and understandably mm -hmm. so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's something not a lot of people think about when they're critiquing some of these papers, myself included. Like yeah, same. Yeah, so, um, all right, let's move into some of your interesting data. And can you just first kind of orient us to some of the methods, how you went about doing like the survey and then we'll get into demographics and then the big old question of, is the psychedelic experience, you know, super mm -hmm. common? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, first off I'll say this is, this project was a, a hot potato. <laughs> um, so I came in uh, towards the end after the data had already been collected. Uh, so I think it started with a former postdoc at Tripper named Molly Pleat uh, coming up with the survey, designing the questions and stuff. Uh, and then she left the lab, handed the project off to Jessica Mantia, um, who was involved in some of the data analysis while data was still coming in. And then she left and handed it off to Zach Skiles, who... Um, who also left shortly thereafter, <laughs> and uh, at this point, all the data was collected, and I I stepped in to to write this up. So, nice. um, in terms of methodology, I I did not design the study. I need to give credit to those um, previous study leads. Definitely. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the study it was a survey study. It was sent to all the facilitators associated with USONA's. Um, phase two clinical trials of psilocybin therapy for major depressive disorder, um, of which there were 145 individuals contacted, I believe. And we had uh, 32 people finish the study and finish the survey, which is a response rate of about 22%. Um, 
not great, <laughs> not, not too terrible either, I suppose, for a, a, a study that didn't really compensate participants. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, we gave them a survey. It, at, it indexed a lot of different aspects of their experience. We asked them, you know, what their demographics were, what their ages were, um, you know, how how long they went to school, you know, what their degree was, um, if they had specific training in different uh, psychotherapeutic orientations. Um, and then we got into their personal substance use as well, including their use of psychedelic substances, um, you know, the total number of use, their last time they've used a psychedelic, um, you know, their intentions for their use, and um, ultimately, you know, how effective they believed psilocybin therapy was for treating uh, major depressive disorder compared to placebo. So, yeah, just a study designed to to gauge, you know, who are these therapists that are doing this? Because up until now, it's been very unclear who these people were um, and what their qualifications were. So mm -hmm. um, that was the, the rationale and the design of the study. Yeah. Nice. Is there any um, like upcoming thoughts about sending it to other institutes, like to get more of people responding. Yeah. Yeah. We're just now starting to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I think there is going to be a follow-up though. Yeah. Um, cool. yeah. I would was... love to see more, uh, more responses and more analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I think it'd be cool to, to gauge underground therapists a bit too. It's hard to Hard to say how you'd ever get like a representative sample of who underground therapists, psychedelic therapists are just because, you know, they're underground. We don't know who they right. are, um, or who, how many there are and who to contact necessarily. So um, kind of messy, but definitely, yeah, a lot more to unpack here, future yeah, studies. For sure. But this is a great start. I thought it was really interesting. So <laughs> um, in those surveyed, there were about 50% that actually had doctoral degrees. And I thought that was interesting because that's not a requirement to provide psychotherapy. No, so. no, this that would, yeah, I think reflect the rules of the, the study sponsor, USONA. I think for every dyad, every pair, there had to be at least one licensed doctoral level okay. um, clinician. And so, yeah, that, that naturally led to a disproportionate number of... Um, doctoral level of clinicians compared to the general sample of psychotherapists but other than that I was surprised about how representative um, the demographics were of the general population of psychedelic therapists yeah do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah so yeah they tend to be um, just proportionately women which is um, the same for non-psychedelic therapists um, they were middle-aged I think the average is like 43 or something like that um and let me see what else we had in terms of demographics. <laughs> Those are the main ones I would say that would um, that were corroborated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And mostly white. That was the other big thing. Yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting was that there's 20% with no prior experience in non-psychedelic therapy. So I feel like that kind of reflects like some of those uh, just people who come into the scene wanting to do psychedelic therapy. And so they get the training yeah exactly yeah yeah i was surprised um there was like a group of four people who who didn't have a master didn't have a graduate degree but they had some kind of other didactic training in psychedelic therapy so one of these you know training programs um offered by these you know companies that are springing up or by a, a university or some other outlet so yeah there was i was surprised that there is yeah such a variety in terms of training backgrounds and um 
I think that I think that was kind of nice to have though, because there is a lot of open open discussion about you know what the qualifications need to be. You know, can you just be a bachelor's level clinician? Do you need to have a master's degree? Um, so I think it's it was interesting to see that at least some of these people were just bachelor's levels and they were ostensibly able to carry out the the treatment effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is important for the scalability of the treatment because it's so expensive to have graduate level clinicians. Um, for the entirety of these sessions so I think that actually is an important point (laughs) nice yeah and uh, so we kind of talked about this earlier with um, different trainings and who is providing these trainings so one of the most common trainings was other right (laughs) (laughs) and so I just was wondering if you had any thoughts on this training component and like the non-uniformity of it and how that might affect like outcomes yeah yeah so I think that was so common just because it was so broad and wide spanning. It captured a lot of different things. Um, so I think university teams were the most common thing captured under there. But, you know, other was so broad that we also included things like breathwork training um, and ketamine uh, pr- uh, provider training as well. So um, I think that was the main reason for it being particularly pre- prevalent. Yeah. Gotcha. You have any thoughts about some of the data showing that folks are practicing psychedelic therapy outside of these trials like (laughs) potentially with little oversight yeah honestly I was surprised that wasn't the thing that blew up on Twitter more (laughs) yeah I I kind of when I was like reading through this paper I was like oh my gosh I didn't even see that like the first time I read it until I like actually like sat down and like looked at all the numbers for this interview yeah, that might be the reason why. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's kind of buried in there. Yeah, um, yeah. I was surprised. I was relooking at the phrasing of the question to to try to explain, you know, why that was so prevalent. And I think the phrasing of the question in the actual survey is ambiguous enough to where it could include people who are not giving the drugs themselves, but who are you know uh, advertising themselves as like integration specialists, and so they have people who. Um, you know, take ketamine on their own, and then they come talk to the the therapist, and um, you know, the therapist is able to do that without, um, you know, without having liability for making the person take the drug or mm-hmm. prescribing the drug. So I think that probably is the I'm guessing is the circumstance that is happening with a lot of these, but maybe not. Yeah, um, I will say that the number of people each of these people treated tended to be very low I think mm-hmm. the median was like two to ten or something it was very low so yeah they're um yeah I was surprised that it was so prevalent but yeah it and also I guess surprised that that everybody was doing it so much but only like a few times each which was yeah. weird yeah yeah <laughs> very interesting finding I'd love to see if that's something that can be that increases or decreases once you get more surveys out yeah 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 definitely yeah I guess something to to keep in mind when interpreting all these results is yeah it's a very specific subsample mm-hmm. of a group of psychedelic therapists so yeah not all of this may generalize mm-hmm. yeah and it's just it's a good point that you said it they might not all generalize but this is one of the first you know surveys to actually ask this question and like analyze it yeah. so i think it's super important start somewhere yeah <laughs> it seems that psilocybin lc and mdma use were the highest used personally within this sample so can you talk about some of these patterns of use and the intent behind the use? And then we'll kind of get into talking about like efficacy beliefs. So yeah, we didn't do statistical tests. I would say, um, you know, comparing 
is intention and for one drug different than another drug, which you would need to do to, you know, to, to actually say that um, definitively. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't think we have the sample quite for that right here, but we can, you know, we can do some, some eyeball information, uh, inferences here with this data. So, uh, you know, so generally I would say the classic psychedelics tend to have a lot of overlapping intentions, uh, which is not surprising because they, I would say that classic psychedelics tend to have more similarities and differences in their effects. Mm -hmm. um, a couple things that did pop out to me were the intentions for psilocybin and LSD, two drugs which are generally considered to be very similar. Um, I think most people consider the biggest difference to be the, the length of duration of the effects. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of intentions, you know, 92% of people with psilocybin said that personal development was a major intention, whereas only 66% with LSD uh, agreed with that. So that was, that's a pretty substantive difference, I would say. Um, and likewise, for spiritual growth, it was 85% with psilocybin and only 58% with LSD, which, you know, given that we generally think of these things as being more similar than not, those are, I think, salient differences. Um, and then lastly, um, I would say with some of the non-classic psychedelics like MDMA, it seemed like the the most notable difference in terms of attention was related to um, social aspects. So, um, sixty one percent sixty one percent of people with MDMA said that they were um, using it for community bonding um, or interpersonal bonding. A similar proportion um, agreed with that, and for LSD and psilocybin, it was only around fifty percent. So, um, I think that's um, in line with our knowledge about you know. Um, MDMA being an intactogen and um, promoting pro-social effects, maybe more than the classic psychedelics are known for. So yeah, so, I, yeah wonder, I think those are the main ones. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, I wonder if like the differences between just, you know, the psilocybin LSD and the responses you got for the intentions, if that has anything to do with just like where people are using them, I guess, like set and setting right Always yeah a, absolutely a yeah you think of people going to like concerts or raves or something you know music festivals <laughs> people do lsd or like mdma yeah exactly yeah it's just in terms of practicality it's just easier <laughs> you know to care instead of carrying around a bunch of mushrooms you know having yeah. a, a little tab or a pill yeah i think mm -hmm. For the dealers, that makes a lot more sense too. You know, like if they're going to be <laughs> yeah, right. offloading large supplies of this, it's a lot easier to do with a small. And uh, mushroom chocolates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> innovating. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so, considering this uh, high amount of use you found in those surveyed, you also analyzed or looked at belief in efficacy, and there was no significant correlation between the personal experience and the efficacy belief. Do you think that would change with a larger or more diverse sample? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this was something that um, seemed really intuitive to me that people who would have more transformative experiences themselves would have more belief in the um, the therapy. Uh, the problem with this study was everybody <laughs> had um, pretty high beliefs in the therapy. So it was hard to find a relationship if you don't have a distribution really if everybody's mm -hmm. at ceiling um it's really hard to pick up correlations so i think oh, that's a good point mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's um i think that was the main problem in addition to having a small sample so i think if we had a little bit more diversity in our samples and not everybody who was all gung-ho about this being super effective you know maybe yeah. we'd be able to tease apart relationships there but 
um as is that wasn't that wasn't very feasible um which you know maybe isn't so surprising you know um you know the people who got invested into the field in the early days are probably people who were had a high belief in the efficacy that you know why would you do it otherwise you know there's a, mm-hmm. a lot of stigmatization and there was a lot of um you know professional resources and credibility that you're putting on the line to enter this area and so um you'd probably only do so if you believed in the efficacy so i think maybe as um the treatment expands and um you know more people who are non-true believers i guess you could say are becoming <laughs> the clinicians uh, maybe that become easier to find what's that i said skeptics yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think it'd be i'm trying to just think of like how you would do it but like if you could do like a spectrum like in, like send surveys about psychedelic use to people who don't do psychedelic therapy all the way to the people who are in the underground like who've been doing this like low-key for like ever yeah and just see like if you get a distribution in one way or the other i guess yeah that would be interesting cool. yeah the only ones i can think of measuring attitudes and stuff like that of like just focused on like clinical psychologists or mental health workers or psychiatrists or in our case, psychedelic therapists. So mm-hmm. that would be interesting. Yeah. To have a, a little bit more wide spanning survey. That's like a meta analysis someone should do. Yeah. Not going to be me. But... <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. What are you thinking in regards to important like implications or takeaways um, from some of this, survey data and moving forward it's good to just establish that psychedelic use is pretty common among these psychotherapists um and you know it kind of sets the stage for us to begin discussing you know what are the pros and cons of these people doing this because they're doing it anyway so Mm -hmm. uh, let's figure out you know uh, what the implications of that are and i think um yeah the the twitter discussions that came up afterwards seem to be indicative of that and and i would say i I didn't think that most people in this space thought there was a discussion or debate to be had at all. <laughs> you know, I think most people took it for granted that psychedelic therapists need to have their own personal use. But I think, um, yeah, I think th- these debates clearly demonstrated that there, there, there's reason to, reasons to doubt that or to um, maybe not require a personal use as a, a requisite um, for becoming a personal psychedelic therapist. <laughs> And I think some one of the things that I really liked that was mentioned, um, you brought up the point about people who have religious beliefs, people who um, are on medications that would be contraindicated. And what if those people are the therapists? Like, then they wouldn't have a job, essentially, because they couldn't take the psychedelic or have that experience. I don't think that a lot of people think about that when they're thinking about it. So. Yeah. So those are really good takeaway from this, like one of the important considerations. Yeah. And I like what you said about how, you know, it's hard to, to know if the psychedelic therapist is, has their own personal use or not, um, whether unless you ask. And I think that's a really interesting question when I haven't thought about a whole lot, you know, um, you know, what should people be expected to have those questions come at them? And is there a standard, you know, for how they should respond? Should you be able to, you know, say that you have personal use uh, or you could, should you be able to abstain from answering the question at all um you know is that a violation of your privacy i could see that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what substances you've chose to take or medications you've been prescribed it's it's kind of confidential so right like uh, <laughs> yeah it's i think um yeah I, th- I think there's a lot of debate to be had there but personally I, I i think the best model would probably be to have a variety of experiences people 
you know, can have the opportunity for experiential training and learning um, as a part of their training experiences. Um, but they don't have to do it necessarily. And they don't have to answer the question if they don't want to. And patients don't have to go to them if they don't <laughs> don't want to go to somebody who doesn't isn't willing to disclose that. And so I think, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's that's kind of where I'm coming to is just, you know, I guess kind of hands off more than anything. Let, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they want to take them, they can take them. If they don't, they don't. If you want to ask, you can. If you don't want to disclose when they ask, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. For sure. And I just thought of this too. Like when people are just going to find a therapist in general, right? Not psychedelic therapists, but you sometimes people like go to multiple therapists to find like a good fit first, right? Find someone they can yeah. vibe with, that they trust, build a rapport with. So it's honestly if psychedelic therapy gets implemented like widely right is it it could almost be like that you could go to a therapist and you could say like up front like hey I really want someone who's had this experience or say hey I really want someone who's a trauma-informed therapist rather than has had a psychedelic experience and I think that's the way that we should be looking at this is like the people who are going through the therapy should have the the choice but it's also up to the therapist to not disclose because some therapists don't disclose anything in their personal life they're just there yeah, as someone to talk to yeah so, yeah like, you hardly know anything after going yeah. to see them for like a decade yeah about their lives yeah. yeah so what what's the difference I feel like it's just some food for thought right I think yeah. it's like a lot of people online who were not on either side right they're kind of like who cares um <laughs> or there was a lot of that secret third thing that lies in the middle like what is it we don't know <laughs> yeah right <laughs> But yeah, lots of good considerations to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this wasn't on anybody's radar a whole lot, you know, recently. So I think it's, I think even though there's tons of limitations to this study, I think it, it served a good purpose of, you know, generating this discussion and getting people to start thinking about these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it was also cool because I got to connect with you and some of the others at UCSF now. So that was really Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, who would have thought? We've talked about the above ground and the underground when it comes to like psychedelic guides and therapists. Um, so some stuff has come out in the last few years about this psychedelic under and above ground, including claims of those to be shamans or guides and using psychedelics as a means to take advantage of people. There's been some stuff in the mainstream news about um, folks who trusted someone they found on the internet and ended up having a really horrible trip or actually dying. Um, so I was just curious of your opinion. Do you think there's any dangers to making, like if it was to be made a requirement for a therapist to have a psychedelic experience, like, do you think this could cause issues with patient therapist relationships or safety? No one should ever be coerced into taking a psychedelic. I think everybody knows that and everybody knows that's a bad recipe. Um, it's going to lead to probably ne- negative outcomes and very challenging experiences. So if somebody is not wanting to take a psychedelic, but is only doing it because they're required to by their job, I think that is, that's untenable. We should never get to that point, hopefully. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, hopefully it's something that never um, occurs because, yeah, I think that's just, it violates people's boundaries and it it's, it's a recipe for giving them a very potentially traumatizing experience. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for answering. That was kind of a hard question. Yeah. The therapist abuse thing is a huge issue in the field right now. And I think, um, yeah, it's something that needs to be reckoned with, but maybe is um, separate from this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just the thought process behind that was kind of like uh, you sometimes you hear like these stories of 
people who take psychedelics, they're all about the cause, right? They like want everyone to do it and, and, but they kind of get a little power hungry, like within yeah. their own psychedelic use, like the opposite of ego death, maybe like too <laughs> sure, much ego. Yeah. Um, and so I was just curious about like, if it was a requirement, like, are there certain people who might have that kind of attitude towards it that could potentially be dangerous for yeah, someone? Yeah, that, that, does, that does make a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. If you're, people have to be funneled into this treatment and you're the person in charge of the treatment. Yeah, that is a recipe for abuse for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was like the, the thought process behind it. I want to be more that specific. Makes, that makes more sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so then the last thing I wanted to talk about was the hype behind psychedelics and people are valuing the psychedelic experience more than the actual therapy experience do you think that's maybe due to some of the hype around these clinical trials yeah i think so and i think maybe just the lack of nuance and how this treatment works you know people aren't used to a drug assisted therapy you know you take the drug and the drug you know works in the background right you don't have to do anything the drug does the work um so i think that's that's just um it's just a very new concept for people to wrap their minds around i think and so if you're you know just um have a surface level knowledge of psychedelic therapy and what's happening i could see how you wouldn't necessarily be concerned about the psychotherapeutic orientation of the therapist providing treatment that would be maybe more yeah like more fine-grained and nuanced question for for people that understand the field a little bit better but it's really important though because um you know psychedelics open up this window of sensitivity and vulnerability and plasticity that's highly sensitive to context and so what that context is is, is seemingly very important and i include this the the psychotherapeutic orientation of the therapist as a part of the context and when speaking about this mm -hmm. um so yeah i think that is it is important to consider um important a big issue though is we really have very little research on um you know what makes the context good or not what you know what in the whole broad package of psychedelic therapy which parts are important and which parts aren't we don't really know that now or yet mm -hmm. we haven't really teased it apart you know we in these studies we throw the whole thing at it right we include the music we include the therapist we include the eye shades and the yeah um the aesthetic rooms and all that it's not separated so we don't know exactly which parts of these contexts are important yet and that and again that includes the psychotherapeutic component so um this is something we're starting to talk about in our lab a little bit um and actually starting to draft a paper around this how you know there should be more research into the psychotherapy of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy um right now you know people have manipulated the drug conditions or the drug between conditions so you know they'll receive psilocybin or niacin or acetylopram or whatever Mm -hmm. uh, but they have not manipulated the psychotherapeutic component at all. So that is, I think, a major gap in the literature right now, especially when we are conceptualizing these things as being you know, placebo enhancers and making them more sensitive to therapy. Um, so I think in this kind of next decade, probably, of psychedelic research, that's going to be um, a major issue. Is, you know, what types of psychotherapeutic approaches are most synergistic with psychedelics and uh, maybe which aren't so mm -hmm. you know trauma-informed approaches um, acceptance and commitment therapy those have been things that have been argued to be embedded into psychedelic therapy but so far there really hasn't been rigorous research on that um yeah. 
yeah so yeah it's something to look forward to i guess in the, in the coming years of psychedelic research and mm -hmm. again we get into broader problems with psychotherapy you know how a lot of times um when establishing a new psychotherapeutic technique you don't compare it directly with a previous one because if you do you're not going to find any differences most likely <laughs> because of common factors in therapy so exactly um yeah so uh again we get back to highlighting broader issues maybe in psychotherapy that are important for psychedelics too <laughs> yeah and i th that whole context is so important and i have always wondered why we do the eye mask and the music and all of that like who decided that i tried <laughs> to look into it oh, like a while ago and i remember asking um one of my colleagues and their response was because some old guy told us to <laughs> and That's I, just, yeah. I, I thought hey like way to tell the truth right like you didn't try to like you know make this whole like a, like reasoning and it was just funny it's like we, yeah I'd say there's like two main sources for the current approach which is trial and error from the 50s and 60s things that were kind of shown to work uh, mm -hmm. versus things that didn't work and then um knowledge from the underground psychedelic therapists who have kept things on going over the last few decades and so i think the initial model in the hopkins group um drew from those sources and then you know everybody else when designing their trials just kind of based theirs on the hopkins model because they you know, they had successful trials and got approvals and all that and so mm -hmm. um nobody wanted to mess with it too much you know if it's <laughs> if it ain't broke don't fix it so <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah so yeah i think we're just starting to get into the phase where people hopefully are tinkering with with those aspects of the treatment more yeah i'm excited to see some of that research because i've always wondered like well what if you didn't give them an eye mask and you just yeah. like, had a normal therapy office like how would that change things would people be more likely to have a negative experience i don't know like mm -hmm. more positives you know it could go either way yeah so. it probably de depends on the domain you're measuring right if yeah. you're you're measuring changes in their appreciation of aesthetic experiences maybe it's better to have the eye mask off instead of you know staring into the abyss or whatever yeah right yeah <laughs> so, yeah probably yeah lots of nuance to to delineate there yeah in the future yeah. good things to think about so do you have any other food for thought to leave our listeners with today on this topic um i guess the main thing would be to to continue the discussion on this topic with an open mind and to continue you know cordial discussions on this area i was kind of disappointed about um, you know, some of the phrases and some of the language that was used by people when discussing this, people got pretty aggressive, especially to you, I would say. I didn't even um, read it. So yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, maybe I shouldn't mention it. Yeah, no, it's fine. I know, like a lot of people messaged me and they were like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, that's good. But well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think, yeah, just as a closing thought, let's, let's avoid that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, let's keep these discussions scholarly and, um, respectful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a secret third thing. Doesn't have to be right. there, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, thank you, Jacob, so much for joining me today to discuss this awesome topic. I really appreciated it, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, awesome. All right, so there we have it today on this episode of Your Brain on Science. And as always, you can like, subscribe, and share with your friends and family. And check out our website, psychedelicbrainscience.com for some information and links related to this episode and tune in next week.